Last week, we opened up the book of 1 Corinthians and began our systematic study through that. And really, if you look at the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, you're going to begin to recognize that the idea of wisdom finds itself being repeated over and over again. And so it kind of pits this idea of this is what human wisdom looks like and this is what godly wisdom looks like. And so we find ourselves in this ready understanding that godly wisdom far surpasses humanly wisdom. But humanly wisdom is kind of, it's where we are. It's the ebb and flow of life. It's what we are surrounded by. And in some sense, it becomes our tendency and response. Let me remind you of something that happened yesterday. Now, for us in Texas, it was just kind of, it was a day. And so we wonder where the warm weather went. And then we remind ourselves we live in Texas and this weather is especially tricky. It's a tricksy hobbit, this weather. And so what we find though, if we had been living in Hawaii, we would remember yesterday. Why is that? It's because for no small number of that, the people in that state, they received the following text message. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Now, what does that do for you? You begin to go to Snopes, right? Come on, somebody hacked the system. You begin to think, I'm so sorry I did those things. It's my time. You run, get family. And so there's all these stories of people that that gather their family together and they begin to kind of fumble through prayers or parents that kind of guide their kids and this is what we're going to do. This bad thunderstorm's on its way. And for 30 minutes, they lived in sheer terror, driving up and down the streets, yelling out the window, seek shelter, seek shelter. But it was an accident. It was an accident that happened in the midst of a shift change when they were going through the normal procedures. This is what happened. Someone accidentally pressed the wrong button. They automatically accidentally pressed the wrong button and a message went out and sirens went off telling people that life as you know it is about to change. This is not a drill. Terror. Now, you may or may not have ever do anything as significant as this incorrectly. You may live your whole life. I certainly hope you never do anything like that. Take me off your friend list, right? Don't send me that text. I just want to die in sweet oblivion. But man, it was a mistake and it happened. But you got to know, this man or woman woke up today and they're just thinking, I am a failure. I'm such a failure. And when that prompt came up on the screen that said confirm, I thought it said don't confirm. And I hit Y thinking that meant no. Oh. I feel like a failure. And humanly wisdom tells them and repeats that idea. And they have a whole state of people who think that they did fail. But the issue is, is when that, that one incident, that one moment, rolls over from that moment and begins to invade and take over the totality of who they are. And they go from being a person who made a mistake, who pressed the wrong button, who made the wrong selection, to seeing themselves as a failure. 
You see, there's a real difference there. One allows us to be human. It allows us the freedom to make mistakes and recognize that we are not perfect. Some of us in this room unfortunately believe that we are perfect. And so each day we wake up with a renewed reminder of our failures. And we are tempted to take on this moniker, to take on this name, to become the human embodiment of failure. Listen, Paul wrote to a group of people who were amazing at failing. This church in Corinth was perfect at being imperfect. It's sin. Oh, they were excellent. At division among the body, superior. At finding the wrong things to champion and the wrong hills to die on, they were doing it par excellence. And so it's interesting to note that even these people in Corinth, who when they looked at Paul, they said, he's weak-minded. When they looked at Paul, they said, he's not nearly as good, he's not nearly as eloquent as Apollos. You know, he's not one of the originals, he's not as good as Peter. And so they begin to look at Paul and decry all the failings of who Paul is and where Paul has come from and his prowess and ability in the pulpit and to stand and deliver. They did such a wonderful job at the wrong things. But what we're going to see today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, is Paul is not beating them up about their mistakes, but he's reminding them who they are in Jesus. Man, this morning we came in. Some of us had absolutely amazing weeks. We were fruitful. We did well in business, in an industry. We were amazing with our families and our quiet times and our evangelistic endeavors in our prayers. But man, I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of us this week, we failed. We didn't live up to the expectations that other people have placed upon us. We didn't live up to our own expectations and we failed. But in failure, we have a choice for what our next action and response can be. Paul calls us to remember who we are in Jesus. Look at how he begins in verse 4 of chapter 1. Paul writes, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Now I want you to understand the gravity of this. These people had spent no small amount of their energy and attention beating down Paul, spreading rumors about how worthless he is and just what iniquity was and how he was, he was deficient in his apostleship. And what does Paul say about them? I am thankful for you. Man, this teaches us something, not necessarily about them, but about Paul and how great his love for them is. This is what a church should be. A church should be this terrifically wonderful place where we can suffer the slings and the arrows of those we minister to and we look at them not with hate and recrimination, but we look at them with love and forgiveness. And this is what Paul does. He extends forgiveness. He extends grace and mercy before it is ever requested. In fact, even in the midst of antagonism and hatefulness being extended to him. And so he gives us this model to, work, to roll with and, and to, to follow. He says, I thank my God always. Now, what's he thanking God for? He says, it's because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And so he wants them to understand something. I'm not significantly thankful 
for you because you have this natural inborn ability. It's not that he looked at those in Corinth and said, they are amazing people. They just can't get out of their own way. They're wonderful people. They just keep making bad decisions. They're wonderful people. If they would only quit being idiots. He looks at them and he says, I am thankful to God for the grace he has given you through Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that this is the only way grace properly flows and functions. It's not grace given to us because we're magnanimous people. It's not grace that comes to us because we're just very giving and very forgiving people. It is grace that finds us, finds us in the midst of a wretched and unforgiving state, and it finds us there in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who allowed himself to be put to death and who calls all sinners to, to worship him and to follow him, to submit themselves to them. And so... Paul writes and he says, this is where your grace is found. This morning, think of your failures this week. Think of the failures in your life and recognize this. God's grace finds you in the midst of those failures, not in your ability to do better and to overcome, but it finds you in those failures in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you receive his grace? Will you receive his grace? He goes on. He says, I'm, I'm thankful, verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him. And how? In all speech and knowledge. Now, the Corinthians, like many of, their, many of the people in this area, valued eloquence. They valued seeing a man or a woman who could just stand and deliver and just speak and just be asked any question and just wow the masses at how well they could bring a room to cheer and how well they could bring a room to mourn. And they could do all of this by the power of their voice and knowledge and information that they had contained within who they were. And so Paul writes to them and he writes to this people that are valuing basically empty words. And this is what he tells them. You were enriched in all speech and all knowledge. And so they look at this and on first pass, what they would think is, I've never filled a stadium. I've never filled a coliseum. I've never stood in an amphitheater and looked up to people all around me and had them cheer and had them cry out and had them say amen. And so in first pass, it, it happens to be that, that, that he's calling them out of an inferiority complex. And so what he is telling them is you were sufficient in Jesus. There is no lacking in your knowledge. There's nothing lacking in your wisdom today. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if you have submitted yourself to Jesus and you would say amen and hallelujah, this is what Paul would tell you today. There's no bit of knowledge you're lacking that if you had it and if you knew it, your life would be tremendously benefited and impacted. There's no speech, there's no word that you could say that if you could say it, then your life would be transformed and changed and made new and all things would fall into position and God would look from heaven and he would part the skies and he'd say, in you are my son and daughter and in you I am well pleased. Know this, in Jesus, God is already well pleased in you. This is what he's saying. We find our enrichment, we find who we are as Christians in Jesus and in Jesus alone. They were tempted to think, wow, I'm not very eloquent. They were tempted to think, wow, I'm a dollar. Wow, I don't know these things. I'm just a nitwit. I don't know the right answers. I don't have the right knowledge. What does Paul say in verse 5? He says, in every way, 
in every way, the totality of your life, to the deepest recesses of who you are, there is no deficiency. Why? It's not because you went to college. It's not because you're in some GT program. It's not because you're homeschooled and you have this one-on-one ratio with your parent-teacher. It's not because you won some National Merit Society badge. It's not because you have a master's or a PhD. It's not because you study on into infinity. It is because God has made you so in his son and has kept you so by the power of his Holy Spirit. You are full and complete in him, even in your sin. You're enriched in all all speech and knowledge. So they're looking at their lives, right? And they know the things they've done wrong. I was telling my wife a story the other day that I hadn't, hadn't, apparently hadn't told her yet. It was, we were were at a a church trip. It was a ski retreat when we were, uh, when I was growing up. And for whatever reason, I convinced the other people in my class that there was only one teacher and there were many of us and she could not keep us in the room and we could go sledding if we wanted to. She couldn't possibly stop us. And so as an elementary school kid, I rallied my compatriots. Braveheart hadn't been out yet, but if it had, or like Gladiator or the Patriot, any of these things. And I just said, look, there's one of her and there's lots of us and there's the door and that hill is awesome. And so we left. We left. I didn't have any sense of guilt or compunction. I had an open hill that was half a mile long in a sled that screamed as it went down the hill. But then my dad found out. (laughs) It was a several-hour bus ride back to our home. And I remember him coming to me and just saying, I know what you did. You go apologize. And when we get home, we're going to handle this. And I knew there was no we involved in the handling. (laughs) Let's be men and let's come together and discuss this. Over a cup of coffee. He was going to handle it. I was going to lay there. (laughs) Willingly. Mostly. You've got to understand, when they receive this letter from Paul, they are acutely aware of all the ways they failed, all the things they've said, all the ways they've disappointed, all the ways they continue to disappoint. And so when Paul writes to them, they're thinking he's going to run down through and, and immediately begin unpacking all their various failures and how deficient their testimony before God is. But what is he doing? He continues to remind them of how great their God is and how great they are when they are found in him. That's why he says in verse 6, he says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so he doesn't say, look, you're, 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 you're watering down, you're ruining your testimony. He says the gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ is confirmed in you. And how do we get this? We get this by receiving through faith the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, his blood shed for us. It is not good deeds and perfection that keep us close to God through Jesus. It is Christ's blood. The testimony of our lives is that Jesus is faithful even when we are faithless. Amen? 
The testimony of our lives is that we stand forgiven. The testimony of our lives is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners who have received grace and mercy undeservedly. This is what he tells them. He says, you've received this, you've been equipped with all these things, even as the testimony about Christ is confirmed. We found the gospel to be alive in you. The gospel doesn't breed perfection in us. The gospel makes us aware of our needfulness. It makes us aware of the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. The gospel implanted in my life doesn't make me walk around with chest popping out and saying, I've got it all figured out, but that Jesus figured it all out and I recognize my sinfulness and I receive forgiveness through him. The gospel is confirmed in you today if you call upon the name of Jesus. Why is that important? Why is that important? Why is it important that this testimony be true of us? Can't we just be a good man or a good woman or a good student or a good husband or a good daughter? Can't we just be a good employee and at the end of our life that this kind of cosmic measuring system will look at our, our kind of things that we've done well and it begins to push down on the scale and it looks at the things we've done poorly or sinfully and it pushes down on the scale and as long as, as, long as the good side pushes down a little bit further, isn't that really what we're striving for? And that is striving. That is working. But recognize this, that the goodness of Jesus pushes down on the scale so much that all the sin and all the falsehood and all the folly of your lives could never move the scale. Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for you in the cross of Calvary renders you faithful. So that's why Paul is able to look at these people who, who in chapters 12 through 14 do little else than argue about who's got the best gift. You see in salvation, the way that it works, when you come to know Jesus, when you surrender your life to him, he takes your natural talents and abilities, he takes those things you're good at, and he shows you how to bend those things to his glory and his honor. But he also gives you certain things, and these things are referred to as spiritual gifts. And he gives you those things for the building up of his church, not one church, but his church universal, for the building up of the body. And those things are supposed to be used for his glory and for his honor. In chapters 12 through 14 in the book of 1 Corinthians, what we find is they say, I want this. I want to be like Ken. I want to be like Matt. I want to be like Chris. I want to be like Scott. I want to have what they have. I don't, I don't like the things God has given me. I find that those things he has given someone else to be superior, and I want them for my own. So Jesus has this amazing word that he has told them. He says, you're not lacking in any gift. Where you find yourself today, do not be discouraged. You may look at your life and you say, I lack talent. I lack money. What can God do with me? Just this bundle of paradoxes. I never do what I want to do. I always fail at everything I attempt to do. Find yourself in him. Find yourself firmly planted in Jesus, who himself is sufficient for all things. Christian, God can never be disappointed in you as long as you find yourself in Jesus. 
Do you find yourself in him today? As Paul looks out at this crew who had found division and, 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 and very lack of unity, and he tells them that they have everything they need. They're not lacking in any gift. But for how long are we not going to be lacking? For how long are we going to be full? He says, look at this. He says, it's as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Know this, that the God who sent his son Jesus to come and to suffer and to die and to be raised from life so that we might believe in him, that the same God is sending his son once more and he's coming for his bride. He's coming for the church. God is going to sustain you to that end. So you feel overburdened. You feel overcome. You feel sad. You feel this sense of of longing that nothing is able to satisfy. No man, no woman, no drug, no hobby is ever, ever able to satisfy. Our God will sustain you into the coming of Jesus Christ. This is what our God is doing. He is sustaining you. He is enabling you daily to draw breath. And what's he going to do there? He will sustain you to the end. In what way? Guiltless. This is the amazing thing. It's not that that God gets there and he says, everybody line up. Uh, James, you go behind the woodshed. Michael, you go behind the woodshed. Bob, you go ahead. You got the fast pass. He finds us all on that day. Colossians 1, 21, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. None of us were born friends with God. None of us were born and popped out and God said, Look what a cute baby. None of us were born this way where God is sustaining our innocence. We were hostile in our minds and opposed to the things of God. We were alienated from God, doing evil deeds. This is who we were. Some of us, our evil deeds manifested in culturally appropriate ways. We were hard workers. We were hard workers. We were casual social gossips. We were just compulsively good people wanted to be seen as good. We wanted to be perceived by everybody in our community as good. And we sought to impress God by the goodness of our deeds. Recognize that in the, in, in the economy of God, this is hostility towards God from you. There are no good deeds you can do to merit the favor and the forgiveness of God. He gives it to you freely and gladly. In the person of Jesus Christ. This is why he goes on in verse 22 of chapter 1 in Colossians. He says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above all reproach before him. When each of us stand before God someday, we stand there not wringing our hands and hoping he was looking the other direction and hoping his eyes were on this guy in Hawaii who was pushing the wrong button and not on us, but we stand before God and the declaration that he utters over our name is not based upon how well Matt Beasley did day in and day out, but it's based on the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ, and my faith union with him. Amen? 
So his declaration cries out, guiltless, free, forgiven. Do you live in the assurance of that today? Or are you living today on the assurance of how well you did yesterday and last week? Christian, recognize the way that our God would have you to live and to experience each day. Each day is new. Each day is guiltless. And each day is lived for him through Jesus. Guiltless is the verdict he will cry. So you begin to think about this and you begin to think about the people who have uttered promises. Will he really do this? Is this really the the kind of God that he is? Is he the kind of God that if he knew my inmost secret, if he knew the secret captivity of my heart and how I desire for fame and popularity or how I crave for drugs or how I crave for sex or how I crave for any other thing more than him, is he the kind of God who would look at my life and say, Jeff is a failure. Paul is a failure. Stacy is a failure, and I'm done with them. This is why Paul reminds them at the end in verse 9. He doesn't say you're declared guiltless because you have continued striving and done well. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, God is faithful. The assurance that you and I are able to enjoy and experience daily, it's not one of nervousness, It's not one of holding our breath and hoping dad forgets before we make it home. It is sure and it is steadfast because our God is faithful. Look at what he's faithful to. He says, he is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. God's faithfulness is displayed in the giving of his son, Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, for our redemption, and for his glory. Our God is faithful, and he will sustain us. Our God is faithful, and this is the kicker. He has called you to dwell amongst a people who will help you remain faithful too. But the fellowship isn't found on socioeconomics, isn't found on hobbies, isn't found on geography. The fellowship is founded in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, whether it be this church or some other, you need to find a church to join with and to commit to. Why? Because God has commissioned and given the church for his glory and for your good. Look at what he says. He is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship, this common union with Jesus Christ. This is solidly the idea of you, plural. And so he would come to us today. He said, y'all were called into the fellowship of his son. And how is fellowship achieved? It is us spending time together, allowing our lives to become intermingled, bearing one another's burdens with no one entering into the idea or the actual action of Lone Rangerism. I'm okay, I'm gonna take care of my own stuff and I don't need anyone's help. You are deceived. The quickest way to pick any of us off is out on our own. The most strength that any of us will ever have is together in humility, in union with Jesus together. 
This is what a church is. It requires terrific humility on each of us that we would come in week in and week out and somebody says, how are you? You say, I am a failure. But I am resting in his sufficiency. I say, how is your marriage? And you say, we're a hard breath from divorce, but he is sufficient to return us. You say, how is your addiction? You say, in my flesh, I am failing, but he is sufficient to uphold me. And your brothers and your sisters rally around you and pray for you, not because they like you. Some of you, quite simply, are not likable. On a human sense, if you're puppies, you're the random ugly one. No one (laughs) likes you. But in Jesus, you're lovely. In Jesus, you're lovable. In him, you are loved. And we have our fellowship together with him. He is our Lord. And he is our Savior, our sustainer. Worldly wisdom is going to call you to look at the past mistakes you've made. Mistakes you've made this morning. And it's going to cry out and say, this is who you are. Look at the pattern of your life. This is who you are. But God's grace speaks over you and says, you are guiltless. Your guiltlessness is being sustained. He's going to return, and he's going to cry out and find you standing broken but whole with other brothers and sisters of Christ. And he's going to declare of you this verdict of forgiven and free. Our God is faithful. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, there are no words to communicate how thankful we should each be for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. They fail, they are weak. And they are limited by our faculties. God, I pray that you would transform the heart in this day, in this room, who feels encumbered and heavy burdened with guilt and failure. God, I pray that you would break loose the heart that is hard this morning. You would help them to experience forgiveness and grace and a true picture of who they are. And God, I just want to pray for those this morning who are being faithful, who are being true to you. God, they're walking with people who aren't. They're called to carry in a special burden in these relationships. So God, I pray for the wife whose husband isn't a believer. Pray for the husband whose wife isn't a believer. Father, pray for the friend who's the lone Christian amongst their friend group, the employee who's a lone Christian in their place of employment. They feel alone and burdened. So God, this morning we pray for their encouragement. And Father, I pray for the continued movement of your Holy Spirit in the life of the unbeliever. 
that you would call them into guiltlessness. You would call them into fellowship with your son through his blood poured out so that they might stand free, free of sin, free of a future death, that they might stand forgiven and guiltless. God, we submit these things to you in the name of our precious Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.